think you've already heard a sermon on death and a sermon on judgment. I've been asked to talk about heaven. The, the priests have been making fun of me at table all week. Yes. I it was a twisted joke of Father Rutledge to give me heaven because apparently I've got a reputation for being an Eeyore. Or a <laughs> I'm supposed to talk to you about eternal joy. <laughs> we'll try. <laughs> Of all the last things, though, I do believe heaven is the most difficult to talk about because unlike death and judgment, we have a whole lot of human experience with everlasting happiness. And unlike hell, there's not so much that's um, gripping for our imagination to latch on to. I'm sure we all have formed some kind of idea of heaven, but most of us, if we're honest, we probably admit that it seems a bit superficial and not that appealing. Especially in the United States, I think we have a very commercialized and a very superficial Protestant idea of what heaven must be like. I don't think any of the boys in the school, for example, are too enthusiastic about clouds and angels and harp music and that sort of thing. But it's what we it's what we received. <coughs> from the world we've grown up in. And also, in the epistles, Leo the St. Paul, he has that quote that we all are familiar with, I has not seen nor ear heard the joys which God has put aside or laid up for the blessed. <clears throat> and in the Apocalypse, St. John makes many references to heaven and tries to describe it. The language is always very poetic very beautiful. We talk about St. John's image of the wedding feast a little bit later. But even St. John's is at, even St. John is at some pains to give us a real conception of what the happiness of heaven will be like. So it's not an easy topic to communicate. And of course in your meditations on the last things, what you want is for each of those truths, death, judgment, heaven and hell to seize your mind so much that you want to live in the service of God, either out of fear of the punishments of not living for God, or out of a very strong desire to have the happiness which ultimately you were created for, the happiness of heaven. <clears throat> we think of heaven as a place, and it will be one day at least, or maybe we could say it is now in as much as our Lord and Our Lady have their bodies there. But it's primarily a state. It's a state of being. And the theology manuals define heaven as a state of happiness that is composed of the vision of God and the love that follows on that vision and the joy that comes from having God in the very specific way that we're going to have him in heaven. It's a state of happiness consisting of the vision, love, the vision and the love of God and the joy that comes from possessing God. <clears throat> and in order to help you form an idea, a little bit of a better idea than perhaps you've had before of what heaven is like, I'll basically work through each of those parts of the definition.
definition. We were created for happiness. And although there's a lot of misery in our life, we all understand, I think, that every choice we make, everything that we want, every action we perform throughout the day, we do it because ultimately we hope to become happier. We hope to have more joy, more satisfaction, I guess you could say. We hope to fill that void or that nostalgia that seems to be at the very bottom of our soul. And everything we decide to do, we really do do it because we want to fill that void. C.S. Lewis, although he was Protestant, I think he had a very good insight in one of his books when he said that sadness that seems to be present in our soul, that sort of nostalgia that even comes at the moments of most intense joy throughout our lives, when we have something that we've wanted for so long, or when we're enjoying the company of somebody we love so much, he said, we all have a little bit of sadness that's still there, and that sadness is like a pointer to the infinite happiness that we were created for. Nothing that we try ever completely fills that void, and he says it's a proof that our souls were created for something infinite, and something that we just don't have any direct experience of on Earth. <coughs> with 
nothing but peace and the song of birds around. There could be any image of nature like that that you've seen before. I'm sure you must have once or twice had the experience of having your breath almost taken away by one of these things and sort of wishing that you could enjoy that beauty forever, that it would never go away. We see the beautiful things around us, and as we appreciate them, we feel a certain amount of joy and peace. And there's no human being so miserable that at least once in a while they don't have that experience. It can come from people, too. Our friends, the personalities that we've come to know and to love, who have supported us and we've given them our support, We've enjoyed their good company, speaking with them and laughing with them. There's a great deal of joy that comes from seeing the face of a friend. And in ancient literature, it's a common metaphor or image of happiness. So-and-so was as happy as somebody who sees the face of a friend. or between spouses who love each other in an unselfish way, in a profound way. In their company, in the company of each other, they rejoice. They see each other. They love each other. They sacrifice themselves for one another. And in possessing the other person as a spouse, they experience a great deal of joy. It's always the same progression, though. First we see what's good or beautiful, and then we desire to have it or to be with it. And that desire is the beginning of love. And if that love is true and profound, we begin to sacrifice our own comfort or our own convenience or our own preferences in order to make the person in particular that we love happy. And as much benefit as we get from that person, there is no joy as deep as sacrificing herself in order to make them happy. Like a mother who forgets herself and her needs in order to take care of a child, and she takes away whatever it is that's bothering or frightening or hurting the child, the sacrifice she makes to make her child happy is one of the greatest sources of joy that she has in her life. So we see and then we love, and once we possess, once the thing we've wanted for so long belongs to us, we all understand that emotion of joy. In a couple of minutes, I'll try to apply that to what we can expect for heaven. But there are limitations to all those creatures. Man has a spiritual while man has a spiritual soul, there's a spiritual dimension to us, not chains of matter, and that spiritual dimension to us, you can say, opens on to what's infinite. It craves what's infinite. It can't be satisfied by something that's limited or changeable, something that's unstable that can be lost. It's why when, when C.S. Lewis, I almost said St. Louis, 
<laughs> he never converted, unfortunately. He was a Protestant, so C.S. Lewis. When he talks about that sadness that remains in our soul, what he's hinting at is the fact that uh, because there's something in our soul that no creature can fill, it must prove that we have an aspect to our soul that's infinite, that's only satisfied by having something that's infinitely good, infinitely beautiful, infinitely enjoyable, you can say. Because we have a spiritual soul, we can't be satisfied by a happiness that isn't infinite. And so none of the creatures that have brought us joy in our life can ever do it fully and forever. We know that very well. Whether we're talking of the beauties of nature or the love of friends and spouses, we know that at best, what they provide for us is limited. You probably have that experience of spending enough time with a friend that you start getting a little bit bored. It's a little bit too much. Even becomes a little bit tedious sometimes. Because at the end of the day, that person does not have unlimited goodness that we can enjoy. And our soul is looking for unlimited goodness, and that's not something another human being can give us. And as much as we love them, we can't spend all our time with them without it getting a little bit tedious. At the very best, the creatures we know and the creatures that have brought us some kind of happiness are limited. They can't satisfy everything in us. But beyond that, they can also be lost. In fact, they all will be lost for us on the day that we die. On that day, finally and definitively, we will have to stop enjoying the company or the possession of the creatures that we've had in our lives. Death is going to strip us of that. <clears throat> all creatures are limited. At the moment of our death, they're all going to be lost. What's even more painful is that the apparent goodness we see in them at first is deceptive. You can call it nature's lie. We see a beautiful face or a charming person, a charming conversation. We're taken by some winsome qualities that somebody has at first. And when we get to know them, we often find that behind that charm and that beauty is a personality that's not beautiful at all, not charming at all. On the other hand, other people may have had that experience with us. We were so charming at first, and as they come to know us, they're so disappointed. All our faults start coming out. We've just, in a sense, what we appear to be has deceived them. They took a bit of happiness from the first encounter, and little by little, they realize that we're disappointing, or we realize that they're disappointing. They have faults that sometimes hurt us very deeply. And not just persons, but things too. Our health, for example. We chase after good health as though there's no happiness outside of health. But our health is so unstable, it's so fleeting. There are I don't know how many things that can break the health of a person. Somebody who is 
who's in very good health undergoes maybe uh, an accident or catches a certain disease that breaks their health for the rest of their life. And try as they might, they never get it back. <coughs> or beauty. How many chase after being attractive in a physical sense? Or they try to hold on to the looks that they had when they were young, thinking, if I can just hold on to that, people will love me, I will find happiness. And a few years after we reach our maturity, that starts going away. There's an inner beauty that can remain. Think of a, of a kind, virtuous, generous, elderly lady who forgets herself entirely and works for the people around her. She has a certain beauty that's much deeper, much mellower, much more satisfying, you can even say, than the beauty of a young woman or the looks of a young man. <coughs> But that physical beauty is something that goes away and it can be broken too. A disfigurement or a disease and it's gone in a moment. And a person who's put all their efforts for becoming happy into the way they look, if something like that happens to them, there's nothing but emptiness behind it. They've sold their energy for that mess of porridge. There are higher things too, like knowledge. Some people like to read and study, to learn new things, to know as much as they can, to go as deep in thinking about the world and human beings as they possibly can, perhaps acquiring a lot of knowledge of theology even. Even that knowledge is limited because our minds are limited. And once we have learned enough things or read enough books, we even start getting sick of that. <coughs> It's a creature too, knowledge. We can mention wealth and power. Wealth and power people seek after in order to become happy and they forget that money is a means to living a decent life, a good life, because destitution makes it difficult to be good. But money is not an end in itself and more money is not going to satisfy us. Funny that the word miser, you know that that's somebody who hoards money and never uses it for any good purpose. But the word miser is exactly the same Latin word as a, a miserable person. We think of it as a money hoarder, but the word itself, miser, means a miserable person. Because somebody who looks for money for its own sake is, well, apparently always very miserable. And power is only a means to achieve the common good. If somebody uses power for, self, for selfish reasons, not only do, do they destroy the people around them, but they never obtain from it what they're looking for, that happiness. So although there's a lot of joy that we get from creatures, from seeing them, from loving them, and from possessing them, we can't find our true happiness in them. But if we reflect on the good qualities they have, and the joy, the fleeting, and limited joy we've received from them, it can help us to understand a little better what must be waiting for us in heaven. And the reason for that is this, that all those creatures are created by God. And just like a painter has to have the idea in him of what he wants to represent before he can put it on the canvas, 
And if you've ever met an artist, you'll realize what they put on the canvas, they're never satisfied with because it's not quite what they had in their minds. But it's got to be in their minds somehow if they're going to put it on the canvas. Or a poet who wants to write about, say, a lyric poem about a beautiful sentiment, they have an experience inside of them that they want to share in writing their poem. And just like artists, they're very often frustrated because exactly what they want to say is impossible to say. And they may write a very beautiful poem, but we understand that the idea they have inside of them must have been even more beautiful, more vivid, more detailed, more intense. And so the external production, we can understand, is never as full or beautiful or perfect as what they have in mind. And if God created all the beautiful things we see, if God put these charming, good qualities in the people that we love, even things like their vigor and their health or their beauty or their knowledge that we enjoy in conversations with them, or the <clears throat> if he gives them the gift of being wealthy in order to help their neighbor, or if they wield power well in order to do as much as they can to, to better our lives. If God gives them all those qualities, it's got to be because those qualities exist in Him in a way that's impossible to imagine. When we see something beautiful, or we love somebody beautiful, or we desire something beautiful and good, we have to keep in mind that that created quality that's drawing us must somehow be in God, and in God to a degree that is infinitely above the way it exists in that creature. All the things we love and the people and the things around us, all the things we want, all the things that make us happy for a short time, all those things somehow exist in God. Sort of like all the colors of the <clears throat> spectrum exist in a beam of white light. And if we love <clears throat> something that's very colorful, beautifully colorful, if we were able to see the white beam of light, it's kind of an image, it's not perfect. But imagine how much more satisfying to our vision that would be. If we can see and enjoy all these good things in the creatures around us, how much more intense, how much more intensely would we enjoy the vision of God? Because we would find all those things in God. It's something that we have to keep in mind when we're tempted. All the things God created are good. They're all good. And that goodness, though, has to be used in a proper way, enjoyed in a proper way. <clears throat> A married person, for example, who sees somebody that's not their spouse and has a reaction of desire towards them <clears throat> for whatever reason, perhaps because they have a, a very uh, winning personality and they're very generous. It could be something like that. Somebody that's dedicated themselves to a life of, of chastity. <clears throat> somebody who's in a certain state of life where enjoying that kind of love is no longer permitted to them. <clears throat> needs to remember that whatever it is that attracts them in that person, it could be a creature too. I use that example because I think we all understand it. 
things and creatures that tempt us to use them in a bad way are good in themselves. But we have to remember that all those qualities exist in God. And we've been promised the enjoyment of God for all eternity. And by temporarily saying, no, that's not my duty. No, that's not where my good is really going to be found. By mortifying ourselves and not going after the creatures that in a way that we shouldn't anymore, all we're doing is preparing our souls for that very same thing when we receive a beatific vision, because that thing is going to be in God. That sympathy, that understanding that we might be looking from a person, that uh, beauty that's hard to express in words that we see in creatures, all of those things are going to be in God but in a much more profound and intense and infinite way. And for that reason, I think all throughout Scripture, all throughout Scripture, almost from the first, almost from the first page until the last page of Scripture, you find references to heaven as a wedding feast. I think it's because God knows that we understand the joy that a couple has on the day of their wedding as the most intense human joy that exists. And he wants to provoke us into wanting something like that from heaven, from enjoying him in heaven. These two people that hopefully in a very selfless way, in a very self-sacrificing and self-restraining way, of course, but these two people have waited for so long to have each other. They've made all their plans seen the good qualities in each other. They've wanted to possess each other. Probably more badly than they've ever wanted anything in their lives. And on the day of their wedding, at least, they finally have that. And although we have so many examples of marriages that have difficulties, we all understand how the day of a wedding for the spouses can be, is, probably always the happiest day they've ever had what they wanted so long they finally possess. The very, very last words of scripture of the Apocalypse talk about the bride calling out to our Lord, come Jesus, come. And the spouse will say to the Lamb, come Lord Jesus. And then Jesus answers, I come quickly and my reward is with me. So even on the last page of scripture, the enjoyment of heaven is referred to as something um, like like a wedding. When we have God go, we're going to have that source of all the goodness that we've ever enjoyed in creatures. We're not even going to have an image of God in our heads. It's a bit abstract, maybe. But we like to think we'll see God with the eyes of our bodies. And God's immaterial, so that's not going to be possible. It's hard for us to imagine. We're going to have the beatific vision. We'll see God. That means we'll see him with our eyes, right? No, it's not bodily vision that uh, we talk about when we see the beatific vision. The things we don't see with our eyes, we see with our minds. We can think of a lot of things that aren't present in this chapel, and we have pictures of them in our heads. 
we can kind of see them in our imagination. We don't see them with our eyes, but if you think of the living room you, you left at home right now, you can probably see where everything is. Maybe it's in order, maybe it's not, but you can see it. It's there in your mind. We've got a concept or an image of that. When we have a beatific vision, we're not going to have an idea of God in the same way we have pictures of, of all the things we think about in our heads. Because those pictures are limited. And a limited picture can't give us the possession and the knowledge of God. This is where it becomes very difficult to talk about heaven because there's nothing closer to us than those ideas we have in our head. There's nothing closer to our minds than those concepts. All those things we can think about in our mind and picture. We can't get any closer to ourselves than that. We can't see our own mind. Our mind sees the ideas, and through the ideas, we understand the world around us. But in our experience here below, we can't get any closer to ourselves than those ideas. And God's going to be closer to us than that in the beatific vision. He's not going to give us a vision of himself that we see with our eyes. He's not going to give us an idea of himself that just happens to be better than the ones we already have. But he's going to pour himself directly into our minds. There will be nothing between our soul, our intelligence, there will be nothing between our intelligence and the God that's filling it. When we say we'll see God directly, we mean that he's going to be in our minds in a way that's closer than even the, con the concepts and the ideas we have. It's a bit abstract, but it's the truth. God himself, the gift, he's going to give himself as a gift by filling our minds with himself. He's going to pour himself himself into our intelligence. And there's nothing we can imagine possessing more perfectly than that. We will have God who is infinite in our minds all at once. We'll have him entirely. There'll be some things about him we can't understand because he's infinite, but it'll be an immediate grasp of the divine nature. We will be doing what the persons of the Blessed Trinity do, contemplating God in the very depths of our spiritual soul, without any ideas in between us and Him. That's the kind of possession we'll have. We don't have any experience of it because we don't possess anything else like that in our lives. What is it that we're going to see in God? Well, it's hard to explain. It's hard to understand. It's mysterious, so it can't really fully be understood or explained. But we'll definitely see God as three divine persons. All the things we believe, we're going to see in that vision. When we say that God is infinite love, infinite goodness, infinite beauty. When we say all those things, infinite mercy. Even when we say that God's infinite justice, we're going to see all those things directly. We won't be talking about them anymore and having dim ideas, but we're going to see all those aspects of God in that vision. We're also going to see what his plan for us was. 
minds are so limited that we can't, if we're honest with ourselves, we can't explain how the infinite goodness of God is compatible with the fact that he allowed us to do certain evil things, perhaps, or that he allowed other people to do evil things to us, or that he allows evil things to happen in the world. Our idea of goodness and evil is so limited that we can't see how God is infinitely powerful to blend the the desire for our good on the one hand and the permission of evil things happening to us on the other. We can't see how he can manage that. And so our temptation is to think he's treating us badly, he can't be infinitely good, or in a more extreme form that he doesn't even exist because how can an infinitely good God allow a world that's this bad to go on? But when that vision fills our mind, all those answers will be questioned. Will be, all those questions will be answered. And the things he's allowed to happen to us throughout our life that we still don't understand, we live long enough and certain things happen that we just can't, we just can't understand. And we probably won't until we die. They're too bewildering. They, they make so little sense. Why would God let somebody he loves and is trying to serve him go through all this? Those sorts of questions will be answered in that one vision because we will see exactly what God had planned. We'll see it the way he sees it. We're not going to see it the way we've, we've trained ourselves to see it on this earth. And when, when that infinite beauty and that infinite goodness fills our mind, it's not going to have the shortcomings of the creature that we mentioned earlier. It's going to be unlimited. It will be impossible to lose that goodness. It will be impossible to be disappointed and deceived. It's stable, permanent, the ultimate end that we were created for. There's nothing beyond having God. And the love that will the, the love that we have when we see goodness in the creatures around us is like the love that that vision of God in our in our beatific vision, it's something like the love that's going to go out to God once we have Him filling, filling our souls. Something like the love that a young man has for his fiancée, or that a painter or a poet have for the things of nature. Something like the love that a mother has when she sees her newborn infant. She finally has what she's wanted for so long. The love that goes out from her because she finally sees and has what she's wanted, something like that's going to happen in her soul. It's going to be so strong, it's going to be such a, you can almost say, violent reaction of love that it will be impossible after that to want anything else besides God or besides God's good. It just won't be possible. Because God's infinite, sort of like an ocean of all that's good and beautiful and um, not one that we can get tired of because of his infinite goodness. It'd be like being in the ocean and being washed over by a new wave of joy and beauty and goodness at every moment for all eternity. And you can think 
get yourself qualified and it sounds nice, but it still sounds like a long time. I'm pretty sure I'll get bored. But you have to, we have to take God's word for it. Once that infinite, um, that infinite thing, which is God, that infinite beauty fills our mind in a closer way than anything that's ever filled our mind before, filled our soul before, there's just going to be no end to the new joys that we'll have in that vision. But St. Paul says, I have not seen nor ear heard the things that God has stored up for those that love him. He's saying that ultimately we can't really form a very good idea of what heaven is like. Try as we might. The very best thing I think we can do if we want to understand what joy is waiting for us in heaven is to try to bring together in our imagination, in our memory, all of the beautiful things, all of the good people, all of the best moments we've ever experienced to try to to remember the happiness and the peace and the joy and the pleasure even that all those things brought us and then to pull away from them, to cancel out of them absolutely every shortcoming or limitedness that we possibly can. And then to imagine having that happiness but intensified to infinity um, all at once without any fear of ever losing it. I think that's the best thing you can do to form some idea, some very shadowy and imperfect idea of what heaven will be like. And finally, when our bodies rise from the dead, they'll share in that happiness. I think doctors and nurses will tell you that very often people start healing physically when they have a reason to be happy again. And in a similar way, when we have cause of infinite happiness in us, our body's going to share in that joy. And you'll be glad to know, I think, that it will be normal and natural for us in heaven to still converse with the friends we have on earth, that we have on earth. All the people that go to heaven are going to be able to enjoy each other's company and friendship. It's an accidental happiness. It's not going to be the essential one. And we would still be just as happy if that were not the case. But uh, your spouses and your friends and your children and the people that you've worked with and gotten along well with, really, all the people we know that are in heaven, we're going to be able to enjoy their company, but now we'll have a different motive for our, our happiness. And there won't be any of those disappointments or deceptions because all the imperfections will be gone. We'll spend all eternity like the church does at the end of the apocalypse, praising the Lamb of God and enjoying the happiness of heaven where God has taken away all evil and wiped away all tears and given himself to us as the light that will illuminate our souls for all eternity.